Hi, this is Patrick O'Reilly from the Vintage Video Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 240, Old School Movie Review. Chris McBrien here along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We've spent a lot of time recently on movies from the 80s. So Derek decided that uh, I needed to, to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and watch something that came out after 1989. And, you know, I've said many times here on the show that movie comedies kind of died as an art form after the 80s. So Derek wanted to put that notion to the test. And we're going to do so by reviewing Old School from 2003. But before we get to the movie, any pop culture you can educate me on this week, Derek, before we get started? Uh, well, sort of yes and no. Mm-hmm. I don't have the traditional long list of here are the movies and TV shows I've watched because... So no fear of the ticking clock coming in. I hope not. I okay. hope not. I'll try and be brief with the few things I do have to speak on. So I had the good fortune of taking a little time off before Christmas and... Going away to Las Vegas for the weekend. Nice. And it was a lot of fun, as Vegas always is. Vegas is like my home away from home. And it just so happened that my favorite hockey team, the Boston Bruins, was playing the Vegas Golden Knights. No coincidence that this trip happened to fall during this weekend. It's just the way that it all came together, which was perfectly fine. Nice. So my pop culture related comment is in Las Vegas, There are slot machines everywhere, and they're always changing them up so that they've got new themes, new art, new styles. Like, really, a slot machine is a slot machine. They're really essentially all the same. But you want to try and entice different people. And I noticed over my last few trips that more and more of the slot machines are themed based on pop culture things, whether it's a movie or a TV show or even game shows. So, for example, some of the ones that I had a chance to to play on and and that I was able to see this time around, one of the big ones that was in every casino was based on the movie The Little Shop of Horrors, which you and I were just talking about before we started recording. (laughs) It's an odd thing to come out. Like, it was like from 1986. That's great. Well, and that's it. Sometimes the, the older pieces are easier to license. So that's why you get some of these sort of nostalgia ones. Um, another older one was, uh, I saw three different Ghostbusters machines, <laughs> two of which were based on the 1984 movie. Mm-hmm. And one I think was supposed to be based on one of the more recent remakes. Uh, didn't play that one, um, but it actually paid out pretty well. And then from sort of some newer movies, the, there was a series of, of slot machines, different slot machines based on the Game of Thrones properties. Oh, sure. Uh, there was, I saw one that was based on the, the recent reboot of the Jumanji franchise with uh, The Rock. And Hold on, uh, was the Game of Thrones one, was it by any chance called a Dinklage? It's a Dinklage. No, unfortunately not. But I did win a pretty size, sizable <laughs> jackpot, uh, getting all of the Tyrion La- or the of the Tyrion Lannisters on on my screen at one point. So nice. that was fun. You didn't get shortchanged on it then. No, no, oh, no, I good. did not. Not this time. Good. Um, one of the ones that's been consistent for me that's been around a long time is a Wonder Woman slot machine based on the uh, TV show from the '70s with Linda Carter. Cool. There's two nice. different versions of the slot machine because the show. One of the best yeah. theme songs of Did they play oh. the theme song when you're? Oh, winning Chris. It? Okay. So if you get the bonus, mm-hmm. the theme song goes off. And with the slot machines, most of them are digital now. Um, yeah. It's not like your traditional three mechanical reels. It's all like where the actual like, the things are like yeah. rolling over. It's just like right. bing, bing, bing. Kind yeah, of. They don't, they're, most of them are not like that anymore. Most of them are all digital and computerized. And so because it's digital, you can Do you trust them now if they're digital? Like, Well, I know how heavily like when it's regulate. rolling, you know it physically stops on, on a, like a thing. But if it's digital, like you don't know, they could just be rigging the dang thing. It's possible, but the... the the thing is so heavily regulated that I don't think any of the casinos would risk losing their license over, uh, you know, jimmying a few machines. But you never know. You never yeah. know. You have to take it on good faith. But the Wonder Woman machine, like so many of them, you can adjust the volume. 
So some people, they want the volume to be down because they, they, they don't care for the music or whatever. Me, I'm the opposite. I yeah. want it to be as loud as it can go. Especially when, when it comes to the Wonder jackpot, Woman theme. I want that thing yeah. blaring. case of the wonder woman slot machine when i hit the bonus it plays the wonder woman theme song and it is so loud yeah i've been on some trips with other people where they're like oh i don't want anyone to look at me i don't like i get so embarrassed when it starts dinging and binging and the lights are going off i'm like no that's half the fun of vegas um but i also uh to sort of bring this back there was a bunch based on game shows so there have been prices right slot machines i've seen many of them over the years but the new ones all now have jim carrey on them uh, uh which yeah you know sort of that way you know they're a little more recent um they've done they've reissued a new one on um the hundred thousand dollar pyramid which i sent you some pictures i won a big jackpot on that the first night oh man uh, did, when you won the jackpot did it sound like this that would have been cool to hear it oh sure God. did it oh, sure nice. did they've licensed the whole thing yeah and then um I also had a chance to play uh, based on the original TV show uh, slot machine based on press your luck. Ooh, and nice. so I, I checked off something off my bucket list that I didn't really know needed to be on my bucket list until it happened. Not only did I, uh, I was playing the press your luck slot machine and I lost, I hit a whammy. And then like a half an hour later I heard last Christmas by wham. So I got whammied and whamageddon oh. on the same day Ooh, in Vegas. Wow. So check that one off the bucket list. Didn't know I needed it, but got it. So yeah, didn't have any new movies or TV, but got to uh, appreciate some of the pop culture as it uh, ties in with my gambling problem. Nice. For me, I got to watch a couple of movies from 1982 to the surprise of no one. I watched 48 hours and my wife actually watched it with me and she actually enjoyed it. Roman nice. Murphy and and um, Nick Nolte he was really good. And I finished watching On Golden Pond, also from 1982. It's on the Tubi app. I've been watching it in bits and pieces here and there. I don't have a lot of free time on my hands. So I have to watch most things in like smaller increments, you know. And um, I think my wife was like, I don't know, she was busy doing some online Christmas shopping or something like that. And she's like, okay, you can watch whatever you want. So I finished watching On Golden Pond. And then the next night she's like, oh, you can watch whatever you want again. So I started watching Piranha from 1978. It was on my mind because remember our last show when we had Patrick O'Reilly on to do mm -hmm. B-movies in the 80s? And I mentioned Piranha would have been my number one on the list, but it came out two years too early to qualify. Right, so, right, right, right. So I decided to watch it. And one of the reasons why I like this movie so much, Derek, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but when, back when I was nine years old, all the way back in 1979, you know, a long time ago because I'm old, my family moved to Venezuela for a year. My dad went there for work. Now, keep in mind, 1979, there's no Netflix or anything like that back in those days. So we get there and there was like three channels on TV and they were all Spanish. So we got a VCR and my parents, or like in 1979, it was probably like a prototype at that point. Probably cost us 500 bucks. Oh yeah, it was really expensive. It was like one of those top loader ones, you know? But And then my parents decided they'd buy a couple of videotapes and then we would just watch them over and over. And one of the movies was Piranha. Maybe they thought like it was like cool, like since there were actual piranhas in the river there in Venezuela, I don't know. But like there's nudity and stuff and like totally inappropriate for a nine-year-old, but... I mean, hell, it was 1979. Like, the rules were different back then. But I think we had, like, I think we, we had, like, three movies, if I remember. We had Piranha, Smokey and the Bandit, and Thank God It's Friday. It was, like, about disco music. And that's pretty much all I watched for a year. But so, anyway, so I was really reminiscing this week because I got to watch Piranha. So, anyway, thought it was kind of cool. So, oh, I also have this for you. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, what is the funniest fish in the world? Uh, I don't know. A piranha. Oh. See really, what I did there? Yeah, See? I was really hoping you were going with clownfish, but no, no. <laughs> you went the other direction the on that one. All I 
I wanted for Christmas was a new intro. Get in the studio um, and record All right, one. okay, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Just last week, I weaned out Roger Moore. He was totally satisfied. I have no idea who that is. Penis reduction surgery. The absolute best documentary I saw all year was... Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. He sounds like a nice guy, right? I, I kind of walked into that one, didn't I? Right, Derek, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we've done a lot of movies from the 80s recently. So it was over you to pick a movie that came out after 1989 and you decided to go with Old School from 2003. So maybe you could just kind of kick things off. Why that movie of all movies did you want to uh, to watch and review here on the podcast? Well, um, it had come up in conversation in one of our previous shows a few months back. I keep a little running list of movies where I'm like, oh, we should watch that down the road. So it had been on my list and... I, I just personally wanted to rewatch it. It had been a while. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I've probably seen it, you know, between five and 10 times before it's got its parts. It's not necessarily something I could watch back to back over and over again, but it's definitely worth the rewatch. And I hadn't watched it in a while. And I was kind of curious as to how it was holding up because like any movie, it's, it, there are going to be things that, that set it in a certain time frame, whether or not that's relevant to the story with a, with a movie like this, so much of what they're trying to do, uh, the relationship between the characters is pretty timeless. And I was a little curious as to what sort of things in the movie, other than the fact that the actors, you know, are so much younger than they are now, um, would sort of tie this to that sort of early 2000s time period. And we can talk about that a little bit as we start to go through it. But you have, as you said at the beginning of the show, I know you always talk about how new comedies are terrible. They don't have that rewatchability factor. Or, um, you know, they, they comedies, in your opinion, reached their pinnacle uh, in, in, 19, in 1989 and they went downhill from there. So this is an example of one that, that I really liked. I actually didn't really love it the first time through. But as I watched it on the rewatch a couple of times, you know, as the years ticked along, I started to like it more and more. And I think honestly, for me, I think it's because I'm not a huge fan of Will Ferrell. Um, and so that was, I think, sort of my barrier to entry the first time I saw it. But the more I watch this movie, the more I can uh, I can enjoy it. And the uh, the movie's directed by Todd Phillips, who, again, I know we will definitely talk about some more. And, and he also did the Hangover movies. And so that's another one that um, we may have to watch. I can't remember. Have we done the first Hangover movie on this no. show before? No, I couldn't remember if we had or not. So. This movie came out in 2003. Hangover comes out in 2009. He does part two in 2011. Um, so, I mean, the director has a lot of uh, a lot of comedies under his belt. There's a few other ones. Again, we can go through his filmography a little later. Um, but there's not a whole lot of people making great comedies after 2000. You have the sort of the Judd Apatow crew, and then you've got Todd Phillips and the people he works with. And so I thought, well, let's do the Todd Phillips stuff first, and we can always come back and, and do some of the Apatow stuff, uh, at, you know, in the new year. So uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, you had not seen this or no. you had not seen it its entirety before. No. Is that correct? No, I don't watch anything after 1989. Okay. And that was my thought as well. So, uh, you know, again, I wanted you to sort of come at it uh, new, new to you. And uh, and we'll we'll dive into it and you can tell me what you liked and what you didn't like. And we can figure out if you think this is the uh, the exception to your rule or if this just is another example of why you think your rule is is true to form. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's a good place to start. You know, like, like I believe that movie comedies died in the 1980s and a lot of the, you know, sort of quote unquote comedies that have come out since then. Like, I believe they pretty much all suck. And. I think, like, I'm getting the feeling you kind of agree with that. But, like, why do you think that is? Do you have any thoughts on that? I have so, some, but. I, you know, comedy, part of comedy, part of what makes comedy funny is an understanding of the context of the gag, the joke, the scenario, whatever it is. The the idea that you think you know where it's going to go and then you get an unexpected outcome, whether it be an unexpected punchline or if it's like a skit or a gag or a visual, something that's just, it's not what you're expecting, but it's funny. It, it, you know, it's not shocking. It's not, it's not like a jump scare. I didn't expect something to jump in front of me, but you know, that's how it works. And I think that modern comedy, modern, you know, like, uh, um, say more recent comedy rather is probably a better descriptor is going to focus on things that are happening in the here and now and that are appealing to, you know, who are we kidding? The 18 to 35 year olds that are that age group now, you know, and you and I are not in that demographic anymore. So I think that we may find, or we may not find 
what other people think is funny today as funny because we don't have that shared experience. We don't have that context. And so, you know, it's, it's like when you watch a foreign film, that's a comedy and things are like the characters are laughing and things are clearly funny on screen. But if all you're doing is reading the subtitles, you're not getting the nuance. You're not, you're not getting those little pieces. And I found that often when I'd go to the film festival and watch foreign films that were comedies and the audience would be laughing. And it's like, I, I don't understand why this is funny because there's there's this disconnect. And I think that's a lot of what's happening now for you and I is in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years, it's that disconnect of, you know, they're not writing for us. They're writing for that 20 year old. And that's neither of us anymore. I'm sorry to say, um, <laughs> you think? but as as is the form of our podcast. I like to think that I keep on top of some of that stuff a little better than you do. So oh, you I, do. I still find some of the things relatable, or at least I understand why they're funny and can appreciate it and laugh at it. Whereas I think in some cases for you, it goes right over your head because you just, they're referencing things that you don't have that familiarity with. So I think that's why you can constantly go back to your eighties and say, well, this was great. Well, yeah, you lived through it. The, the writers of those movies at that time were writing for you. You were the demographic they were shooting for. A comedy that comes out today, I'm sorry, is not writing for the 50 to 60 year old white man. It's, you know, that's not going to give them. Yeah, but I, I feel like it's more than that. And I think in my mind, the decade of the 1990s killed comedies. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. First of all, the 1990s were all about independent movies. You know, yes. after like Sex Lies and Videotape and, and movies like Pulp Fiction, you know, Independent films were all the rage. And it's basically how Harvey Weinstein made his fortune. You know, that's how Miramax became this major studio at the time back then. Because all these independent movies were, were sort of made outside the mainstream of, you know, the Hollywood studio system, right? And that was a big, big deal then. There was that. There was also CGI became all the rage in the 90s. Like Jurassic Park and The Abyss and T2, Judgment Day and all that kind of stuff. And there was other forces at play too, like things like Disney. Disney movies became a thing again in the 90s, if you remember. Aladdin and The Lion King and Little Mermaid and stuff like that was all a big thing. Disaster films were big in the 90s. Remember Twister, Independence Day, Armageddon's a good, Titanic even really for that matter. And then there was the whole thing that you mentioned a couple weeks ago that got me thinking, Die Hard on a Blank was a thing in the 90s. You know, like all these action movies that followed this sort of premise. And so I think with all those things going on, there just wasn't an appetite from audiences for comedies in the 90s. So so as a result, it just died as an art form. And the ones that they did make were pretty like Coneheads and Problem Child and Encino Man and movies like that. They just weren't very good, you know? So... I think it was the, the decade of the 1990s sort of killed comedies for, for all those reasons. That's That was my well, kind of thought. I think also you've sort of tap danced around one common theme of almost everything you just talked about was dollars and cents. Part of the reason independent movies became a big thing is technology became available where filmmakers didn't need to have a studio backing them to make what eventually became a full on Hollywood movie. You had these this generation of people who had grown up with a camcorder who now were looking at things differently and and working outside of the the established machine. They could make a movie for super cheap and so you had studios like Miramax who were willing to take risks on smaller productions because there were again it was dollars and cents they pay a small amount of money to to secure the rights and they have the the potential to make a ton of money if it becomes a hit and you can see things like you mentioned pulp fiction is a good example and much later in the 90s you had like the found footage with uh, Blair Witch Project and things like that where it's dollars and cents um, and then, uh, as computer generation and, and, uh, you know, the tools started to change, they could do things, uh, more cheaply. Uh, so like Jurassic Park's a good example. Yeah. It costs a lot of money to make, but it probably cost them less to ultimately do with computers than it would have if the whole thing had to be stock motion or, 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 you know, uh, real actual, I was gonna say dolls. That's not the word I'm looking for, but puppets and marionettes mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So it's this combination, I think of, uh, of, um, you know, the dollars and cents driving it. I think also in the nineties, you started to get more of the political correctness for better or for worse, where there was increased awareness and increased sensitivity to certain types of 
disenfranchised groups that mm. didn't want to be a punchline anymore. And we talk about revenge That's of the nerds point. all the time, yep. right? You, you laughed at the guy because he was gay. You laughed at the guy because he was Asian. You know, you laughed at this kid because he wore glasses. It's like, I think when you started getting into the 90s, there was a lot more sensitivity around that. And, and I think rightly so. But I think it almost was like the pendulum swung too far too fast. And it was too much of a risk financially, dollars and cents, to put out a comedy that might upset people and get boycotts and have protests. And suddenly this million dollar movie makes no money because people are are protesting it. So I, I think that that's part of the reason we didn't have a lot of great comedies in the 90s. It was safe, safe, fair. So you th said th something like the Coneheads, which again, based on a Saturday Night Live sketch. So it was a property that people were already somewhat familiar with. Um, you know, you had those kinds of, uh, of, of comedies that come together in Sino man is a very tame comedy. It's a PG rated comedy. Um, you know, there, you're not as likely to offend anybody with those kinds of movies as you would have, uh, you know, a decade earlier where you're like, well, we don't care. We're just going to put it out there. We're going to make money off it. So I, I think that was a big part of it as well. Okay. So for totally this movie, wrong, but that's just my thoughts. Yeah. Okay. So on to old school here. It was released on February the 21st, 2003. As you mentioned, it was directed by Todd Phillips. It was, it was starring Luke Wilson, Will Ferrell, Vince Vaughn, and had a budget of $24 million. It made 75 million at the domestic U.S. box office. But that year, 2003, any guesses as to the number one movie at the box office? Uh, well, it was that would have been before Marvel. Uh, probably a sequel, Lord of the Rings, maybe? Well, that's a great guess. But Finding Nemo was the number one movie at the box office. Then Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, The Matrix Reloaded, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Bruce Almighty, and X2, X-Men United. So four of the six movies at the box office that year were sequels. Ugh. Nice. Okay, so this movie... Overall, I agree with something that you said earlier. I, I I think this movie overall isn't very good, but it does have a few memorable scenes and, and they are strong, but it's it's really inconsistently funny and it's a bit awkward at times. So it, it, it for me, it doesn't stand up to those comedies from the 1980s. You know, sure. I mean, what does, you know, but I want to talk a little bit about the cast because it's always sure. good to get it. Yeah. Luke Wilson. I think it's pretty fair to say that Luke Wilson is a very odd casting choice, I think, to play the lead role in a comedy. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. He seems like an odd pick. He's just really, really bland. Yeah, he's he's an actor who I, I bland is the best way to describe it. Anytime he's in a movie, I sort of go, oh, look who it is. But at the same time, you never think, man, if I heard Luke Wilson was coming into a movie, I'd be the first in line to see it. But at the same time, if they're like, I don't know if you're going to like this movie, it's got him, it's got Luke Wilson in it. You're not going to be like, well, forget it then. I'm not watching it. He seems very, very neutral in my mind anyway. I just, it, it's almost like he, his career was. He's like the Craig T. Nelson of his generation. Yeah, it's like his career's not good enough to be a failed actor, mm. or it's too good to be a failed actor, but not good enough to be like an A plus actor and how Owen Wilson had a better has had a better career than than uh, Luke Wilson is sort of beyond me but I, I mean I guess personality goes a long way who knows so why did they call him the godfather I don't think I ever understood that I I I, I don't know I I, I I feel like he was miscast here I almost feel like Will Ferrell would have been better suited to play the lead role I don't know I think uh, so to answer your Godfather question, uh, they don't really address it other than the, the when he walks into the house and Vince Vaughn is giving the presentation to the fraternity pledges the very first time. And he just says, ladies and gentlemen, the Godfather, I think he's just looking for some sort of way to raise the status of his friend here. Right. Like he's clearly living vicariously through his friend who is single and and has all these options in front of him. So he wants to put him up on that pedestal by by making him the king. And I think just Godfather is the idea of, okay, well, if, if this comes out, then you know he's the top dog here. I, and I think that's that's all you really need to read into it. They don't ever actually mm -hmm. explain why they chose that name, but... I'm like you, too, with Will Ferrell. Like, I'm not a huge Will Ferrell fan, but I feel like he might have been better off because, I don't know, like, in some ways, like, you know, you could kind of picture him as being, like, the kind of hard partying guy back in his day. He'd be the Godfather, you know what I mean? Not Luke Wilson. But he, he, then you'd be screwed because you need Will Ferrell as Frank the Tank. Well, know? that's it. I think I think you need Luke Wilson to be that straight man to allow Will Ferrell's outrageousness to just play off it that much better. Um, Even Vince Vaughn might have been better 
suited as the lead role. Like the thing is, he's not a very likable guy overall, so I guess he couldn't pull it off. But Will Ferrell, like like you, like I said, I'm not a huge fan, but for me, he's always been at his best when he plays a supporting role. Agreed. Like, yeah, I did like him in this movie. Um, yeah. and, and I think we can talk about a few of our favorite scenes from the movie in a bit. I'm sure we're going to get to that. But a, a couple of things that stood out to me just off the top of my head, like the streaking, you know, and again, we'll get to that in a bit. And for some, for some reason, it may, I actually spit out my drink in one scene. They've got the little baby. So Vince Vaughn doesn't want them to use profanity. And he's like, all you have to do is say earmuffs. And then I just cover the kid's ears. So he like, he shows them, right? He covers the kid's ears and he's like, okay, now you can see anything you want, you see? And Will Ferrell just blurts out, (laughs) I just spit my drink out. I don't know why (laughs) I found that so funny, but I just did. I just, so I, I I think with Will Ferrell, he's better taken in kind of small doses. You know, I think whenever he's the leading man, he's always kind of fallen flat for me. Like things like Anchorman and Talladega Nights. Those movies miss the mark for me. But I think when he does these supporting roles, like he's better. You know, I think of um, oh, Austin Powers. Remember when he was Mustafa? Yeah. Like that scene I'm when he falls. Burned, burned. <laughs> oh, oh, no, you shot me. You shot me in the arm. <laughs> like that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I'm, I'm not a huge Will Ferrell fan, but I think he was probably the best thing about this movie. Yeah, I think that's fair. And from what I was reading about uh, some of the trivia and stuff on the movie, they were saying how um, a lot of the stuff that he did was uh, was ad libbed. That a lot of the stuff a lot of them did was ad libbed. Oh yeah, but for sure. Like they were saying that whole earmuffs thing was just something that he and Vince Vaughn had sort of yep. come up with. They credit to Vince Vaughn and just like when they were improving, he's like, "Oh, let's just do this." Um, and again, you need a certain level of talent to be able to do that. And the fact that Will Ferrell had come from Saturday Night Live, like you knew he had those improv chops, which is. I got to think a big part of why he was in a movie like this, uh, you know, at this point, I don't know if he was still on Saturday Night Live in 2003 when they made this or if he had just recently left, but he was a bankable name. So the fact that he wasn't the lead, um, you know, was was kind of an interesting choice that it's like, OK. And from what I from what I was reading, this was sort of Vince Vaughn's first for, foyer into uh, into comedy. Oh, yeah. um, the studio know, didn't course, didn't want to cast him. Yeah. He, he did like he goes swingers. On all these great comedies after this. Yeah. He was in Swingers, which was, you know, quite a big hit, you know, was underground hit. And then he made that stupid remake Psycho, if you remember. But yep. but the studio didn't think he could do comedy. You know, I, no, I mean, I'd be honest yeah. with you, I'm not even sold on the fact that he still can. But uh, I don't think Vince Vaughn is very charismatic. He always kind of comes off as a jerk to me. Yeah, he always seems a little smarmy. It's like, uh, okay. And there's even the there's the one sort of creepy scene where he's like with the college girl and then she actually tries to make a move and he's like tries to be the good guy. Oh, no, I'm married. I'm married. And I'm just like, ugh. you know, it's like, dude, you clearly this is what you want. Like, what the hell? Like, I'm not not saying he should have done anything, but at the same time, it just seemed like an awkward scene, which maybe was the point. So Ellen Pompeo, she is absolutely adorable in this movie. I had an instant crush on her as soon as she came on the screen. Like that smile of hers. I don't know. My God. So I, I can see why she went on to have success in TV, although I've never watched Grey's Anatomy. My wife watches it all the time. But, yeah, I, uh, I watched it too. Oh, I thought she was just adorable in this movie. I really, really liked her a lot. And on the, sort of on the other end of the spectrum, I guess, is Alicia Cuthbert. She's just flat out gorgeous. I, I I don't know how she didn't go on to do more acting roles. She was in 24, wasn't she? I that believe so, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland, right? But she hasn't done a whole lot else, has she? I want to say, and I could be totally talking out of my butt on this one, but I want to say that she she raised the flag uh, on somebody um, who was being inappropriate, one of these sort of Weinstein kind of situations, and, and got blackballed before, <clears throat> excuse me, got blackballed and wasn't wasn't able to find work, and this was like sort of years before Me Too and, and right. everything else, and it's like, well, it's great that she was able to stand up for herself and make these claims. Again, I could be totally wrong. I could be mm-hmm. misremembering this, but I'm... I, fairly certain i remember hearing that um but uh and, and now didn't she end up marrying a hockey player yeah i think it was mike fisher she ended up marrying but uh, she's know. canadian too well yeah of course canadian and, girl, and is, hockey player go okay yeah it's not just her looks like she, i feel like she's very charismatic i i think when i watch this movie 
she steals scenes when she's in them. So I think, I think like she has all this charisma and stuff, but you know, she, like I say, she never really parlayed that in for whatever reasons, you know, like, like what you mentioned, I want to mention Jerry, Jeremy Piven as well. <laughs> he plays this bad guy. <laughs> he seems to do that pretty well, but I think as I'm watching this more and more, I'm thinking, I don't even know if he's the bad guy here. Like they bullied him when he was younger, right? He wasn't he like the younger brother of somebody. And then at yeah, one point they, they say when they first meet him, yeah, they, they mentioned, or they think it's Vince Vaughn. It's like, didn't we lock you in a dumpster or something? So really they're the bad guys, you know, not him. I don't, I remember the first movie I remember seeing him in was um, one crazy summer. You mentioned that movie. On our he was show. in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. There was like that rich kid, the rich blonde kid. He was one of his, uh, one of his guys. Um, I've never watched Entourage that he was in, but I, I thought he was really good here. But like I say, I just kept coming back to the fact that you know, I don't know if he's really the bad guy. Like these, and maybe that's why I don't like this movie so much. Is these three guys that start up this sort of fraternity when they're older almost reminds me of remember Revenge of the Nerds you know, from the eighties, mm. it almost reminds me if, if the alpha betas went back and started up a frat again, it'd be like them. So in some ways, like they're like the three lead guys in the movie, but in some ways they're kind of jerks. I don't know. Chris, let me, let me ask you this. Yes. You're, you're a professional academic. Mm-hmm. Are you maybe perhaps projecting a little onto this film where you just feel a kinship to the Dean because that's close to you in real life. And you, you know that if there were these young upstarts that were having a good time and partying while you're home with your family and your children, you're not going to be looking at them going, wow, I wish I had what they had. And I'm so jealous and I'm going to just have to do everything in my academic power to give them a hard time. You sure there's none of that creeping into your possibly decision-making here. Possibly. I, you know, I also, I'm, when we were talking about Alicia Cuthbert, I noticed her dad, the guy that played her dad was uh, John Locke from Lost. Yeah. Terry O'Quinn. Terry O'Quinn. I thought it was cool. Uh, Patrick Crenshaw was blue. I remember him from Alice. He was one of the regulars at Mel's that would show up from time to time on that show. And I also remember him from Night Court. But I, I think most people recognize him, you know, as blue in this movie. You know, in Night Court, was he the guy who spoke really slowly? Oh, I think he was. He was only in like one or two episodes. I just re- I looked at him right away. I'm like, that guy was in Night Court. I remember that. So, um, and I did want to touch base on the director, Todd Phillips. You kind of mentioned him. He also wrote the screenplay of this movie. And then, like you mentioned, he did the Hangover movies. He was nominated for Best Director Oscar for Joker. For Joker, yeah. He's had a very successful career as a director and a producer. Well, and a writer. Like, why not? Needless to say, I've never seen the Hangover movies or the Joker. Go figure. Uh, but he was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for Borat. Really? Yeah. But I think for me, like for a guy that sort of went on to become so critically successful, he's got kind of a disjointed directing style here. Like, I don't know. Are his other movies like that? Obviously not, I guess. But I don't know what you mean. I mean... This movie to me plays out like a bunch of a bunch of scenes, a bunch of almost comedy sketches just kind of thrown all together. And it's very disjointed. That's what I thought. Oh, no, I, I, well, I mean, I didn't I didn't feel that any more than the story sort of required it to. Um, but again, different people, different opinions. Yeah. Well, like um, I said, like, overall, it's kind of hit and miss for me. But I, I think like the, the scenes, some of the scenes themselves, some of them are, are actually pretty good. So a couple scenes I want to talk about. <laughs> the tranquilizer dart. Like and yeah. I, I laughed at this. So what's his name? Is it Sean William Scott? Is that the guy's name? Yeah, it's the guy who was Stifler. Yeah, yeah. Sean William Scott. Yeah. He's got that mullet. right? And then he's like this sadistic animal handler for the kids party and he's got this tranquilizer gun and then will ferrell accidentally shoots himself in the neck i think that's the best scene in the movie and then you, you could totally tell he's got like this prosthetic around his neck like where the dart is stuck in you can just see it right but and then, well, i think it's supposed to be like that it's swelling up oh maybe i don't know that's what, what i was oh, okay for, yeah. and then i like sean william scott's reaction he's like yes that's awesome. <laughs> you took one in the jugular, man. And I just started laughing. I thought that was so funny. And then the drug starts to hit Will Ferrell. And he's like, what? Yeah. Oh, you're crazy, man. 
I like you, but you're crazy, man. The guy's like, you got a dart in your neck. And he stumbles and falls into the pool. And then and then he starts to, to hallucinate about his wife. And she's kissing him. And he comes to. And it's Sean William Scott giving a mouth-to-mouth CPR. And he starts trying to tongue the guy. So he just throws him back in the pool. That whole scene I thought was really funny. Like that, I was, I was just laughing thinking about it, as you can tell. So yeah, that think- scene was good. Yeah, I think between that and uh, the one you mentioned at the beginning with Will Ferrell streaking, like just that whole sequence where he's like, oh, streaking. And he's he, from the moment when he's like, I promised my wife I wouldn't drink. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, yeah, we're going to go antiquing. And it's like he's basically trying to be a grown up. And then the frat guys are giving him the weird looks. And he's like, OK, I'll do one. I'll oh, do when one. it hits your lips. It's just know. so good when it hits your lips. Yeah. And then like there's just that immediate downward spiral for the next five minutes. And then he's just like you see him come out. He's naked and he's. He's grabs Snoop's mic and he's like, let's go. And then, of course, when the the wife and her friends are in the car and then they see him, they don't know what's him at first. They start making comments. And then when he gets in the car, she's like, get in this car. And he comes in like butt first. Yep. <laughs> that, that I just I was laughing so much. And of course, I'm reading the trivia on it. And they said, like, in the rehearsals and that they're like, are you going to do it? Do you want to be fully naked? He's like, I got to be totally naked in this. Just the sneakers and socks. That's it. And they, there was all these behind the scenes stories about uh, about the because they did it live on a real street and like people looking out and and he's like they did the rehearsal he was wearing a robe and people were like what's going on and then it's like took it off and people were like whoa whoa that's that's a lot of Will Ferrell we're seeing there so it's just- probably the most memorable scene of the movie for a lot of people I think was a streaking and and like you mentioned like I think the reason why it works is because just the commitment that he has to that yep. scene. Like you said, like, you yep. know, just not even just because he's, he's naked, but like there's that whole falling off the wagon thing, you know? So he's like committed yep. to this scene, but I think in some ways, like there's kind of the problem. Like the fact is like, he's an alcoholic, right? And, oh, and, absolutely. And he, and he can't drink. And when he does fall off the wagon, he just goes nuts. Now, I mean, I like 80s comedy. So I'm I'm like the least prudish person, you know, in in the world when it comes to the, this stuff. But it seems like a little bit of an odd choice of subject matter, this alcoholism, to try and mine for comedy. I don't know. That was my kind of takeaway from that. I, I didn't really read too much into it. It's this sort of the 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 laughable drunk has been a part of movies for so long. It's like it's it's you know, not I don't think it's intended to belittle the seriousness of alcoholism, but I think it's it's an easy, it's, you know, it's sort of low hanging fruit. We'll just say that when he drinks, he gets crazy. And then Will Ferrell can be Will Ferrell and do whatever he wants. Um, one of the things I want to mention about that streaking is, so I have the actual DVD of old school and okay. on the, on the front of the disc, uh, like the actual CD that you take out of the, out of the packaging, it's got a, it's that picture of him running down the street naked and the part in the middle where you would normally like put your finger to take the disc out, that's where his butt would be. So his butt <laughs> is not actually on the sticker. It's that's where the cutout in the center is. And I, I just laugh every time you take it out of the thing and you're like, hey, I put my finger in Will Ferrell's butt in order to get this DVD out of the package, which I'm sure was a very deliberate choice by the the people marketing this product. So a couple other scenes I want to mention. So th- yep. the wedding scene at the, the beginning, band. the band. Oh, yeah. The Dan band. <laughs> Yeah, like they're they're, they're the Dan band, this actual band, right? And they do all these covers of 80s tunes, but for me, it's the swearing that they put into the songs. Like, he's like, I need you more tonight. I need you more than ever. And it's just, again, it's the commitment that he puts in into the singing. He just, he just go all out with the profanity. I just, I find it's funny because he just sings with this passion. But the reactions of the people that are dancing, at first they're like, not sure if they actually heard the lyrics, right? <laughs> like, was that an F-bomb in the song? And then like the old people are hearing it. And I, I found that funny. And I think maybe because I used to DJ weddings. So I, th- that scene actually had me laughing too. I got Nice. That was pretty funny. Andy Dick's uh, BJ scene. That was pretty good. Yeah, the girls hire him to, to teach them how to give oral sex. <laughs> and he's like, I don't care if you got a husband of 10 years or just some hot sailor you met at TGA Fridays. <laughs> and you tell he's speaking from experience, right? Yeah. He's like, that you just met a few months ago, never called you back, yeah. left you with a little something called herpes. 
which I then gave to the dog. <laughs> he just keeps, you know, you just tell he's improvising this scene over and over. This is pretty good. But and then when he gets down to demonstrate, first of all, they're playing Hungry Like the Wolf, which I thought yes. was pretty funny. And he starts using his teeth so much. He's basically shredding the carrot. I'm like, what? Like, it just, again, it's just outrageous. But that made me laugh, too. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I'm not usually a fan of Andy Dick, but uh, that was a small part and it was pretty good. Yeah. So, again, some of these performers, you give them just a small little mm-hmm. part to work with and uh, and they can kill it. It's like I would never watch a movie with it. He's one of those people. Andy Dick's a star. Yeah, you couldn't imagine him like leading a film. Yeah, no, it's uh, I'm just I'm just sort of trying to think of like what are some of the other uh, like the whole thing at the end where they have to do the academic competition or like the they get kicked out and they have to do the school spirit thing. And it's like you got to do academics and athletics and. And there's the scene with the debate where they're like, uh, they bring in the Raging Cajun. He tries to bring in the ringer and then uh, Will Ferrell. It kind of reminded me, though, a little bit of trying to rip off um, Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's definitely what they were trying to to lean on is is uh, that whole idea of, you know, this is this is the way a lot of these 80s movies work. Like he's trying to use that formula but update it a little bit. Um, And the fact that these the fact that the main characters are supposed to be like 10 years older like this this is almost like if you're going to put yourself in their shoes and like if you're going to go to see this movie in 2003 and you're in your early 30s you're going to know those movies from the 80s because you would have grown up with those movies from the 80s so i, I think it was a definitely a deliberate choice to lean on some of those tropes that, that you were already familiar with from those 80s comedies i'm sure there i'm sure it was oh just something that just came to mind was the, the scene too with the pledges and the hazing where they have the cinder block thing I yes. noticed in that scene, the one actor is the guy from the Big Bang Theory. Did you notice that? Yeah, Simon Helberg. He's uh, plays Wallowitz. Yeah. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, I don't really he's, watch he's that in a show, couple but... of scenes. Yeah, he's in a bunch of scenes, but he only has a couple of lines. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the so... one that's married to like that really gorgeous blonde girl with a high voice in um, yes. in in the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I think the part that made me laugh about that scene the most was when Vince Vaughn is talking to them all. Like they're all on together in a line, and he he says something like he's like you're gonna experience intense mental strain, and then Will Ferrell just lunges at them and he yells. <laughs> I don't know why that just struck me as so funny. Like it was just weird, and then he's like he's like Frank, pace yourself. But yeah, remember when the scene like Frank like just yells at them for some reason? I don't know why it just struck me as being really really funny. But um, but overall, like like I said, I. I think, you know, there's a few scenes that I laughed at quite a bit and thinking about them now, I I do, they are quite funny, you know, but overall, it just, like I say, it just kind of is a little bit disjointed. Like like it's like, it's like these individual comedy sketches that are going on. I just didn't think it threaded together really all that well. It it tries to be Animal House for the millennial generation, I guess, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better sense, but but I don't know. I I don't think it really succeeded. Here's my, here's my suggestion. Sure. If millennials want to see Animal House or an Animal House style comedy, go back and watch Animal House. Like it's it's way better than this, you know. That's my thought. So I want to just circle back to something I said right at the beginning before we wrap it up. Sure. Um, the movie takes place in two thousand and three. I assume that's it's supposed to take place when it was when it actually came out. Mm-hmm. The only real things that I found in here that dated the movie. Um, I mean, the absence of mobile devices always dates a movie, but the fact that Vince Vaughn's character, it was the speaker city was the store. And he talks at the beginning about having discounts on beepers and DVD players. And, and then there's a couple of critical part parts in the movie where they have like the voice recording cassettes, like the very beginning, um, Luke Wilson, they're at the conference and you see him put the little micro cassette in and he hits record and he hands it to his buddies. And he's like, I'm going home early. And then which, of course, then sets it up for the end when there's the tape recorder and they pops a little cassette out and he goes, I did good. I got the cassette. So, I mean, that obviously that dates it. The fact that they needed to use an actual cassette recorder Um, and then just the idea of beepers like, uh, you know, that people actually carried these things around. It's like, hey, look, somebody's trying to call me. Well, when I get near a phone, I'll call them back, back. I suppose. but uh, yeah, other than those those little details, like for the most part, this movie could take could easily take place today um, or any time between 2003 and today. Like I think a lot of the the themes they talk about, um, you know, the idea of these these old guys trying to relive their youth, the 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 
variation on the idea of how much responsibility do you want or need? You've got, you know, Vince Vaughn's character who clearly has some money, has a job, has a family, has a wife, has a kids. You got um, Luke Wilson who doesn't have any of that. You got Will Ferrell who we see him get married at the beginning. And then by the end of the movie, he's divorced. So it's like, you know, these guys, they're, they're, old enough that they should be leading grown-up lives, but they're still sort of young enough that they don't really know what they're doing. And I think that's sort of a very relatable theme that definitely gets reused over and over again in pop culture and movie and TV. And I think that, uh, you know, I think a lot of the stuff in this movie does have a certain timeless quality that you could watch it now, 20 years later, and it's still funny. And I think you could watch it 10 years from now and it'll still be funny. Aside from the fact of the cassettes and the beepers, a lot of, the, a lot of this, I think, will still hold up. I guess, like, you know, like you're saying, these guys are trying to go back and relive their their younger years and when they were like, you know, in, in, a, in a frat house and frat boys and all this stuff. But the only one of them that, that strikes me as being like a, a partying frat boy was Will Ferrell. The other guys, I don't think they were like, didn't they didn't feel like it anyway. So, again, maybe that's just why I thought it was just jointed and stuff. You want to give it a rating out of 10? What would you give it? Um, Probably like a seven. Wow, that's pretty. High. I would think I would give it a five. I'll give it five out of 10. It just doesn't hold up with the, the comedies of the 80s for me. I mean, that's just, not just me. But anyway, on that note, what do you say we have some? Fun with Caveman. We like to play a game around here that we play, you know, from time to time. And, uh, and I think we're going to play it again. So here it is. Pick the flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis. Then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. We love our movies. So what I'm going to do is I'll give you the year and the synopsis, and you have to guess the film. And the common thread here is these are all movies about college. Super okay. easy. All right. Super easy. Right? We're going to start with some real easy ones. 1978. At a 1962 college, Dean Wormer is determined to expel the entire Delta Tau Chi fraternity but tr- those troublemakers have other plans for him. Is that uh, is that not the aforementioned Animal House? Yep. National Lampoon's Animal House, of course. Okay, 1984 at Adams College, a group of bullied outcasts and misfits resolve to fight back for their peace and self-respect. Yeah, again, the aforementioned Revenge of the Nerds. Here's an easy one for you. 1985. An uptight teenage prodigy enters a top engineering college but feels awkward among the freewheeling students when a professor aims to turn their laser project into a military weapon. He and his offbeat roommate plot to ruin the plan. Right. We did that one on this show. That was a real genius. 1986. I'm sticking with a lot of 80s. I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but the three movies that we just talked about, Mm -hmm. we've done all of those on this podcast, right? You and Yancey did Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds before I joined the show. Here's one we haven't done, but it's still an 80s coming. 1986, to help his discouraged son get through college, a fun-loving and obnoxious rich businessman decides to enter the school as a student himself. Oh, I love this movie. That's Back to School with Ronnie Dangerfield. All right, breaking out of the 1980s for a moment, 1993, a young man has always been told that he was too small to play college football, but he's determined to overcome the odds and fulfill his dream of playing for Notre Dame. Oh, it's got to be Rudy. 1985, back into my wheelhouse, Mm -hmm. a group of friends just out of college Struggle with adulthood. I don't know. That could be anything. I have no idea. St. Elmo's Fire. St. Oh. Elmo's Fire. Nothing was even on fire. My movie yeah. sucked. 1997, a janitor at MIT has a gift for mathematics, but needs help from a psychologist to find direction in his life. Yeah. Goodwill hunting. 2001. Elle Woods, a fashionable sorority queen, is dumped by her boyfriend. She decides to follow him to law school. While she's there, she figures out that there is much more to her than just looks. Yeah, it's a great movie. This is uh, Legally Blonde. 
2000, four college buddies embark on a trip to retrieve an illicit tape mistakenly mailed to a female friend. Oh, that was by the same director as this one, right? It was, um, wasn't it just called Road Trip? Yes, and it was directed by Todd Phillips. It's really, if you think about it, it was just based on the scene from Animal House when they go on the road trip, right? That's where they got the idea for it. Okay, and the last one, 2000, an English professor. Oh, sorry, I got two more. My mistake. 2000, an English professor tries to deal with his wife leaving him. The arrival of his editor, who has been waiting for his book for seven years, and the various problems that his friends and associates involve him in. Jeez, I have no idea. The Wonder Boys. The oh, Wonder Boys. Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas, that, right? Toby Maguire. Right? Yes. I haven't seen that since it came out. Yeah. Okay, and then the last one, 1998. An odd assistant for a college football team discovers he has a unique tackling ability and becomes a member of the team. That's uh, the Water Boy, Adam Sandler. You did really well. You know, all those movies on college. So say college movies are sort of in my wheelhouse. There, there were, uh, you know, there's certain kinds of movies. If it's time travel, con artists, bank robberies, I'm in. College movies are like just creeping into that list. I've seen a lot of them. Nice, nice. Okay, so uh, our next show is going to be our last one for 2022, Derek. We're going to that come time back. of year again. Yep. Yeah, we'll come back. We'll have some fun next week, next week. And then then after that, then we're going to have a best of episode. And then we're back in January with season eight. <laughs> and I guess, Chris, in January, we'll start with like a, a sort of a year in review, right? That's usually what we do. Yeah, we usually kind of take a little, look back uh, at look 2022. Look back on 2022. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And you know what? We One of the other things we never even talked about today was uh, they just released the uh, nominations for the Golden Globe. So maybe that's something we can uh, talk about a little bit at the start of the next episode. And, uh, yeah, go from Absolutely. there because we're yeah, getting into award season. And you know how much we love uh, we love award shows. Yeah, so We certainly do. And you know how up I am on all new things in pop culture. Yes, yes. So I have lots to contribute to that one. But, yeah, we <laughs> usually do take a look back at the year. That's for sure. And because I don't I'm not really up on a lot of the new stuff, maybe I'll just write a new song. Hey, maybe kick off the new season with a bang. So, all right. So next time we come back, we're going to have a great show for you. One of our last ones of the year, that's for sure. But until then, this is Chris McBride on behalf of myself and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.